With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Cass, today we honor the life and career of one of American fashion's great movers and shakers, a fashion insider, or maybe even one could argue a fashion insider's insider, a woman who helped shape the face of American fashion for more than 70 years. And her contribution to the rise of American fashion beginning in the 1940s cannot be underestimated. And yet, few outside of the fashion industry may be familiar with the name Ruth Finley. But within the industry, Ruth, who passed away this past August at the age of 98 years old, well, she was the glue that held the fashion industry together. Her publication, The Fashion Calendar, was and continues to be the go-to clearinghouse for scheduling events and shows, industry contact information, and so much more. Yes, and on the occasion of her memorial service, which is to be held this week, we dedicate this episode to the much-beloved doyenne of American fashion. To speak about Ruth, we have invited fashion historian Natalie Nudell to join us. And aside from being a close friend of Ruth's, Natalie is also one of the producers of the upcoming documentary on Ruth's life and career, Calendar Girl, which will release next year. Welcome, Natalie. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It is an honor to be on Dressed and to be here to speak about Ruth and the fashion calendar. Yay! Um, I happen to know that you've been working on this subject for some time, and, and its founder, Ruth Finley, as well. How did you first start working on this subject? I discovered Ruth Finley really by accident. An article that was written about her in the Wall Street Journal had sort of popped up on my Facebook feed. I read it. I thought it was very interesting and that she was an interesting figure, but I didn't think too much about it. A few months later, while in graduate school, uh, a group of classmates and I were organizing a exhibition, mm -hmm. and we decided that the exhibition should look at New York Fashion Week and how the city of New York has influenced the fashion presentations that happen here in New York. I realized that since the exhibition was going to be called Runway Moments New York Fashion Week, that the calendar that I had recently read about and Ruth Finley, its matriarch, would be an invaluable inclusion in the exhibition. And so I reached out to the fashion calendar. It was fashion week, so they were very busy and couldn't <laughs> speak to me. But after a a little bit of prodding, I finally was able to make my case. And uh, Ruth and her team were so interested in the exhibition and were extremely generous and lent us one calendar from each decade that it was in print. And we were able to display it all at the exhibition. And it really tied all of the themes that we covered together very well. And she also... Uh, Ruth and her executive editor, Mary Hackley, also came and spoke at our symposium. And that sort of really launched my personal interest in the history of American fashion. Previously, I had been focused on French fashion. And that's it. Oh. Yeah. So we are going to absolutely delve 
much further into the calendar itself. But before we do that, would you tell us a little bit about Ruth's background? So Ruth Finley was born in 1920 in Haverhill, Massachusetts, which is a town about an an hour north of Boston. It's a former factory town. And I remember Ruth telling me that Macy's was founded in Haverhill, Massachusetts. I didn't know that. And so she grew up there. Her father was a dentist, and he was an immigrant from uh, Russia. And she, she was one of four children, the only girl. And she was very much um, encouraged to pursue her education, and she herself was determined to pursue a career in education. And she decided that she wanted to go to college, and the story is that she was also, she was accepted to Wellesley, but decided against it. She wanted to go to Simmons College, which is in Boston, and which was sort of more of a professional college where they encouraged the students to go and get real industry experience by way of internships and really encouraged uh, girls and their students in general to go and work in whatever field they chose as opposed to like a home ec program or something more related to women's education. Let's get back to the calendar, Natalie. Um, how did she first conceive of the calendar and why? The story behind the calendar is very interesting and really reflects the very sort of nascent stages of organized American fashion during the 1940s. Ruth, while in college, studied uh, journalism and nutrition, and in her forays into New York during the summers, she would intern. She first was at the New York Herald Tribune, where she worked in the the food section, and there she was exposed to Eugenia Shepard, the prolific fashion journalist there, who introduced her to fashion. Then the subsequent summers did internships that were more fashion-oriented. She worked in the window design department at Lord & Taylor, and then sort of volunteered to work with or worked as what Ruth called a Girl Friday, which is a term that is similar to an intern. Yeah. Um, She worked with Eleanor Lambert on some very early charity fashion shows. Whose name I'm sure will come up again in the context of this episode. (laughs) Absolutely. So she, she was working in these fashion experiences, I guess, these fashion shows, and she had met two other fashion journalists uh, around the same time who were also from a town uh, close by where she grew up. Her father was their dentist. It was <laughs> Francis and Alice Hughes, um, who both worked for different magazines at the time and who were much older than Ruth. They were already somewhat established in the fashion industry. And when she was speaking to them, her father had sort of introduced them And she was speaking to them. They were all having a conversation about Fashion Week and these early fashion presentations that are happening. And there was a conversation about it's how they were disorganized and that there were a lot of conflicting shows and that for the journalist or the buyer who has to cover these shows, that the conflicting schedules were making it very difficult for them to do their job. Because you can't be in two places at the same time. Exactly. And if you have to write two reviews, you're sort of at a standstill. And so 
together, they all sort of thought about how this could be fixed. Now, Ruth also worked in the theater as an usher for extra money during the summers. And the theater has uh, clearing houses for when there are theater dates, because, of course, it's very important for theaters to communicate in terms of what they're showing and when. And so sort of inspired by that model, the fashion calendar came to be this vehicle for the consolidation of this information. Uh, Very simply sort of formatted, and it really filled this gap. No other publication existed that was doing this. And so the fashion calendar really was conceived in that way as a problem-solving tool that could help this industry that was still trying to organize itself. And what what type of events or what type of information was contained within the calendar or listed? In the calendar, we can see listings for fashion shows, presentations, charity events, all the different annual promotional vehicles and collaborations that companies and manufacturers will uh, participate in. We talk a lot about the fashion calendar in terms of fashion week and press week. And of course, when it comes to the fashion presentations, that compacted week that happens biannually, of course, the calendar is essential for that. But the calendar was published weekly until uh, the early 80s. And there are fashion Uh, events and promotions and information about how people could access that year-round. And so continuous showings and all kinds of information about how showrooms are interacting with the fashion press are constantly listed in the fashion calendar. And for a long time, there would be uh, blurbs taken from press releases and contact information and information on how to get an invite, or who to contact for uh, press information, etc. So it was really kind of like one-stop shopping for everything that you need to know about the comings and goings and all the doings um, in American fashion and New York fashion specifically, although that does morph over the years and she does eventually include international events as well, which I'm sure we'll get to. She actually includes them very early on because it, the Champs Syndical and the Carrera de la Moda, they purchased uh, listings or they would be subscribers and they would have, they would list the showings of the biannual fashion weeks in those cities in London and Paris, in Florence and then Milan. And biannually, they would always show the listings and who to contact in Europe mm-hmm. for American press and buyers. It's actually very interesting that later, it's really sort of like in the 90s, I guess, I think maybe more in the 80s or 90s, she actually stops including the French uh, listings and says, here's the contact for that calendar. If you are interested, you could contact the Champs-Sendicale. So the contact information is there. But American fashion grows so substantially from the 70s until uh, the 2010s when Ruth passes along the calendar that it's almost as if there isn't any space in the calendar anymore to include these foreign events. It's a separate animal entirely. Exactly. The fashion world and the amount of fashion events that are happening globally at any given time are so numerous that 
it starts to have to be segmented. Mm -hmm. So what was the format of the calendar and how did its design inform its function? What's so wonderful about the calendar is that you could look at early issues and issues from 2014. And other than the printing mechanism and the type of paper, it is essentially the same. It is pink paper with simply printed information at first by way of mimeograph, later by way of a printer, and with um, a red or a pink cover. Now, Ruth always said that she wanted the calendar to be very bright because, as you know, in the pre-digital age, the amount of paper that would be in one's office was significant. (laughs) And so having a red booklet would be easy to find. They were designed to be used for the week that it was published and then thrown out. But it was very (laughs) simply uh, conceived. It was paper and two staples. And luckily, we have uh, examples that exist because there were office copies and issues that survive. But like you say, they were really meant to be ephemeral. And since they're based around timely events, once that event has passed, it's really no longer pertinent to the actual user of the calendar. Right. Unless you're fashion historians like us. (laughs) Exactly. And then it's very important for us. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'd like to speak about the role that women were playing in shaping the identity of American fashion during the 1930s and the 1940s, um, because it seems that some of these really great creative strategies to promote American fashion were implemented by women. So who, in your opinion, aside from Ruth, obviously, who were some of the most important players during this period? So I really feel like the 1930s and the 1940s is this really interesting time where women are playing more and more important roles in the workforce, but then again, also within fashion. If you think about Paris in the 1930s, we have a slew of very important designers that are all women, Schiaparelli Mm -hmm. and Chanel and 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 Vianne. And I, I feel like the wartime has a lot to do with it. Men had other more nationally security important roles to play. And the same thing was going on in America. And more and more women were educated. And so these women were entering fashion. And business specifically. Exactly. Because I think that prior to that, there was sort of this idea that if you entered the, especially in America, where it wasn't necessarily understood as fashion, it was really the garment business, Mm -hmm. volume. There was this idea that it was these factories in New York filled with sweatshop labor, and it wasn't this glamorous industry like it was in Europe. And as women were being more and more encouraged to enter the workplace, I think women saw, the women who were entering saw it to be important that it was a peer-to-peer sort of encouragement, where you start seeing these women who are building notoriety for themselves, women like uh, Helena Rubinstein, Lily Dashay, Claire McCardle, but then also Carmel Snow and Julia Coburn and, of course, Eleanor Lambert. Grand dame of American fashion. The grand dame, exactly. (laughs) She is so pivotal. She Um, was um, a—she had her hand in all the pots. 
I think I use this phrase a lot on this show, but it's true. Um, She was not only a fashion publicist, she had a nationally syndicated column. She was responsible for founding the Cody Awards. um, The Best Dress List. The Best Dress List. uh, MoMA. The the CFDA. Yes. The Whitney Museum of American Art. I mean, she did it all. She's what we call today a multi-hyphenate. Yes. Maybe the queen of all of them. She's the hyphenated hyphenate. <laughs> um, another important uh, woman who is sort of under-investigated also is Tobe Collar Davis and also Ethel Trapagan, who established um, training programs for more and more women to enter fashion. And so this peer-to-peer encouragement really led so many women during the interwar period and then also into the 40s into entering fashion and all of the sort of new mechanisms through advertisements and PR uh, and events to enter this industry and in a really formative, influential way. Mm -hmm. And they were even like self-organizing themselves um, with organizations like Fashion Group International. There's a few other of them out there. But these were really, really critical Connections at which women were supporting women within not only fashion design, but the fashion business. Absolutely. I, I see all kinds of listings, all dating back from the earliest days of the fashion calendar. In the mid-1940s, you see listings for fashion group international clinics where speakers would talk about fashion PR and all the interesting fashion business-related entree points into the industry and how many different uh, positions you could have as a buyer or an editor or a writer or a reviewer. Or, or even an illustrator. An illustrator. Because there's some great female fashion illustrators Absolutely. of the period, like Dorothy Hood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So many wonderful women all banding together. We will learn more right after we get back. Eleanor Lambert was actually a mentor to Ruth. Um, In what way? So Ruth, while she was very young, interning, worked with Eleanor Lambert uh, in a volunteer capacity. And when she started the calendar, you know, all these women were very much uh, aware of each other and knew, everybody knew this very small group of people who were making names for themselves in the industry. And when the calendar was established... Eleanor Lambert started Press Week in 1943. Which is the precursor to Fashion Week. Yes. So the fashion calendar became extremely useful for Eleanor Lambert because she would, her New York Dress Institute, which was her group, essentially she had a PR company and she her, quote, group of designers were part of what we called the New York Dress Institute. And this name morphed in many ways. Um, And this group of designers would be shown together in a press week format at numerous hotels. And she would take out full page, multi-page, not not ads, but listings on the fashion calendar Mm -hmm. and list all of her showings. And to be part of Eleanor Lambert's cohort, not only did you have to be able to pay her very expensive fees, but it enabled you to be associated with her and to have all of the benefits of that type of exposure. And she was very, very 
specific about who could be included. And the calendar was uh, very useful for her. And of course, with Press Week, that also enabled the calendar to be viable as a publication. Yes, because once Eleanor Lambert was a regular subscriber and used the calendar for her, her purposes, it further validated the calendar as a very important uh, publication. And personally, they were close. And Ruth always said very positive things about Eleanor Lambert, that she was tough, but that she was so important in really shaping not only American fashion, but promotion and PR as a practice. Right. Everything that people do today are based on ideas and sort of programs that she developed. Mm -hmm. And Ruth herself really becomes this nexus point within the fashion trades and much beloved. Did you have anything that you would kind of want to speak to about what role that she played? Obviously, the calendar itself was a clearinghouse, but what role was it that Ruth specifically played? Ruth took on a very uh, personal, intimate approach to the fashion calendar and to running the fashion calendar. She felt that it was important for the people that were calling her office to get really good advice from her specifically and that everybody, all of her subscribers would be taken care of and given a fair chance for their show or event and that it was up to her because she was the central figure where everyone was revolving around that she had the duty and responsibility to be fair to everyone and make sure that everybody got the proper uh, exposure and audience, et cetera. Because I'm sure there was, this was a very political thing. You know, if one brand wanted to have an event at the same time as another, ultimately, sometimes it was probably Ruth that was deciding their fate. Definitely. And she was brokering a lot of these things. And in many ways, she used her personal relationships to help maneuver and pivot and sort of massage people's egos in order to convince them that the time slot that she's recommending is really better for everyone. In my research on the fashion calendar as a publication, I really feel like more than just a clearinghouse, the fashion calendar really becomes this nexus point where it almost articulates the community of American fashion as a whole and becomes this place where people within this community and people and companies who want to access this community can go to and did go to to be able to interact with it. And so much more than just informational, it allows for that participation because Not only could you go to the fashion calendar to see who to contact and where things are happening and getting specific names and addresses and phone numbers, direct contact. And this was all by subscription, we should add. All by subscription. But also, if you weren't a subscriber and you wanted to put a one-time listing and you wanted to access the readership, which was essentially every editor in American and you know, global fashion, essentially, Europe as well, and also buyers and all kinds of other people in the supply chain that make American fashion, 
you could put a listing in there and you get that audience. Mm-hmm. So it was really, I think, um, a dynamic uh, publication that is not really seen that way, but it really did function in a much more complex way. Yeah. And there were also um, some spinoff publications like Fashion International. What was the strategy behind those? What were they and how did that work? So there were actually two spinoff publications. There was the Home Furnishings Calendars, which Ruth and a few other associates and editors from the home sort of decoration and decorative uh, sectors came together and created the Home Furnishings Calendar in the late 40s. I think it was in 46 or 47 that they started. The calendars were in exactly the same format as the fashion calendar, but in green with green pages. And it ran for... Um, less than a decade, but really in the format of the fashion calendar. And then Fashion International was a publication that Ruth started in, if I remember correctly, the late 60s or early 70s. And I think the the the, the idea was that Ruth and her editors and assistants and employees, which she didn't have many, but maybe two or three, they would be going to all of these fashion shows. They would mm-hmm. be going to the shows to not only experience the logistical maneuvering and report back to see how it was to go to these shows, what was it like to literally be in the editor's shoes. And for anyone that goes to Fashion Week shows or is in that aspect of the fashion industry, you know that you're going show to show and everybody's seeing the same people show to show. Yeah, And it really is this small community of people that are just, you know, for a lack of better words, being herded show to show <laughs> for a week straight. Yeah, and I like how now everybody just calls it Fashion Month because once New York is over, then it's Paris, then it's London, and then it's Milan. Like, I don't know if that's exact order, but it's it. people are exhausted it's, at the end of the month. It's extremely intense. And so I think that she thought, saw an opportunity where her editors could also participate in covering Fashion Week from an alternative perspective that wasn't necessarily based on selling clothing or promoting designers, but honestly being able to give reviews and opinions uh, based on going to every show, I think. So she added it as an extra subscription so you could add Fashion International to your yearly fashion calendar subscription. I know that most of her subscribers did take it, but that it was never really profitable. And it was almost like a labor of love. She thought that it was great to cover. They would have reviews, but then they would have interviews. Like as they're walking from show to show, they'd interview Bill Cunningham or Tim Blanks or some other sort of journalists that are covering this and ask them what they thought about the show. They'd have listing, not listings, but more like um, reviews about the Costume Institute, exhibitions at the Metropolitan Museum or other great sort of art and culture related uh, information. Mm -hmm. And it was very simply printed on white paper uh, and it was almost like a extended flyer. But I've read a lot of them and it's actually really interesting because the editors and uh, Ruth and the people writing for Fashion International really had an interesting perspective because they weren't sort of associated with the commercial aspect of it. So they would highlight young designers or new participants in Fashion Week that maybe were really under the radar, or they would pick up on things that others wouldn't because they were really doing it out of 
enjoyment. Right. And and this takes us back um, to the point that really these publications for us today as fashion historians are invaluable. So what is your take on what's most important about them today in the context of them being historical objects? So the fashion calendars and the publications uh, surrounding them are invaluable for our understanding of the history of American fashion. They were sort of created in real time and reflect actual goings-on and events that were happening. They also reflect so many broader socioeconomic, cultural, global uh, dynamics, dynamics about gender, labor, also design and design influence. As someone, uh, as a researcher of the post-war American fashion industry, it's fascinating to track not only designers, but people who are in promotion and in events and all of these other necessary people that are part of the supply chain that make really important contributions, but that aren't the face Mm -hmm. or... Not the name on the label. Exactly. And so it's very interesting to see that. And I also think that it's interesting to look at the fashion calendar because it also, in many ways, these sources just remind us that all of these challenges and questions that are going on today in fashion uh, as a result of online shopping and social media and essentially these advances and how we consume and consume information and communicate, these challenges were happening for de- in the decades past. The changes were just different. Right. So it's very interesting to track that in that way. But as a historical document in terms of American fashion, I'd like to quote Harold Coda, the former curator at the Metropolitan Museum at the Costume Institute, who said, well, when I interviewed him, that the history of American fashion will be most legible in the pages of the fashion calendar. Mm -hmm. And so as a historical source, of course, read in conjunction with other sources, it's invaluable because it's it's a 70-year compendium of this information that is consistent over time. And as a historian, you know, and as someone who works with archival material, you know how rare that is. We will learn more right after this sponsor break. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm-hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. 
dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives. But what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And now the calendar continues to be maintained by the CFDA or the Council of Fashion Designers of America. They acquired the calendar. They bought it from her um, in 2014. How did that come about and why is it important for the CFDA now to function as the calendar's keeper when previously it it was a private enterprise for those 70 years? I know that many different groups and organizations have tried to purchase the calendar from Ruth over the years. And I think that when she was ready to retire, the only viable option in her eyes was the CFDA, mainly because by 2014, the CFDA had grown from being this small office that was started by Eleanor Lambert in the late 1960s to this really important organization and association for American fashion. Mm -hmm. And the CFDA in the early 90s with its president, Stan Herman, and executive director, Fern Malice, they initiated the first Fashion Week, New York Fashion Week at Bryant Park, 7th on 6th, uh, as a way to help organize the fashion presentations in New York. And over the years, the CFDA continued that oversight Mm -hmm. of the fashion presentations. And ultimately, the CFDA uh, is best equipped to organize the calendar and take it over. And I know that Ruth felt that way. They, uh, they've they changed the format of the calendar somewhat and have tried to adapt it to our digital world. But like anything else in fashion now, we're in this time of great change and it's in a transition just like so many other things. Right. Well, and you bring up a really good point there because currently there is a lot of discourse within the fashion industry about how the system is quote unquote broken. Do you want to speak to this about um, what people are kind of talking about 
the historical precedent of the seasoned showings that were governed by the calendar and kind of what we see the new trend being and how that may differ? Well, I think when the the fashion calendar started in the 40s and really even up until the early 2000s, fashion shows were really meant to be for editors and buyers to see... Industry. Industry, to see the garments in movement at a show at one time. Because as you know, releasing what you've designed, it once you release it, it enters the public sphere and you have less and less control over it. Mm-hmm. And so... They were these shows are really designed in that way. Today, fashion shows, as you know, with the internet and the speed at which we get all of that information, they're more oriented towards content. Right. And the large amounts of money that companies are spending on these shows, they see it now instead of being more about releasing their collection, it's more advertising and marketing. Right. Spectacle. The spectacle. Exactly. Celebrity spectacle. Exactly. And so That's um, an aspect of how the function of the show is changing uh, as a reflection of the speed at which we can consume this information. But then also the idea that I really think that also in the 90s with the creation of Fashion Week at Bryan Park and TV shows like House of Style and other uh, TV shows later on like Project Runway really gave the mainstream this vision into the fashion industry and made the fashion industry itself uh, a spectacle. Not Mm -hmm. necessarily the clothes or the design, but the actual industry. And so that has changed the function of the fashion show and how the industry itself deals with fashion. It's Mm -hmm. almost like the industry is grappling with the fact that it's them themselves are spectacles. Right, right. They don't know exactly what... Their identity isn't exactly clear at the moment, Mm -hmm. and that's being worked out. Um, You are actually in the final phases of finishing a documentary film on Ruth and the calendar. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that, and what were some of your experiences making the film? The documentary in which I produced and was working on that covers Ruth and the fashion calendar will be titled Calendar Girl. It's very exciting, and it's a film that followed... Ruth, during the last year and closing of her office and the transition of the fashion calendar from Ruth's uh, control to the CFDA, we also uh, followed her around to Fashion Week shows and also covered her experiences creating the calendar, but also her personal life experiences On top of being this foundational figure in American fashion who created a very important publication and was a central figure in the industry for so long, she was a exceptionally strong and amazing woman who lived a very interesting singular life and who had many challenges and overcame them and is an interesting figure in and of herself despite her important role with the fashion industry. And so the film really delves into Ruth and her life and her 
philosophy on life and business and human interaction, but then also looks at the history of American fashion, the fashion calendar, and the important role that it played and that she played in creating it. So I know that aside from the film, you and Ruth were exceptionally close. Um, Did you want to share perhaps one of your favorite moments with Ruth um, or what she meant to you? Well, there are innumerable favorite moments (laughs) with Ruth, but she really is this person who lived by example. And I think being able to just absorb any of it by osmosis was a gift. She was able to impart so many lessons, but also her joy for life. I have so many amazing memories going to the theater and discussing fashion and As a historian, it was so special to be able to look at her publication and have questions about it and then be able to discuss them with her. Mm -hmm. We rarely get that. Rarely. It was, and then also, you know, filter that through her memory. Of course, memory is never perfect and we all create narratives for ourselves. So it was very interesting experience to look at how the historical record reflects the oral historical record. And ultimately, she has now entered the pantheon of great women who have impacted my life. And she, and I know that I could speak for so many other people who had really uh, meaningful interactions and relationships with her. Yeah. So before we sign off, what do you think? feel Ruth's legacy was? Um, And what can women working in fashion learn from her example? In my time interviewing people for the film, one of the themes that struck me and that was consistent in all of the people that we spoke to was Ruth's positivity and outlook her acceptance and openness towards people and her encouragement and service that she believed in. And I think that that personal approach and the importance of those personal relationships is something that is reflected in the fashion calendar and the development of American fashion over the 70 years that she was the publisher of the calendar. So that, to me, I think, was so much part of her legacy. The memories that people have of her are always about her wonderful personality and the love that she had for people. Oh, so sweet. Thank you so much for being with us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's a delight to speak about (laughs) Ruth and the calendar with you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Natalie. That was incredibly lovely. Ruth clearly impacted so many people's lives and careers, and she led this incredibly long and rich life. She was a true treasure, for sure. And and with her departure, Cass, it kind of feels as if a certain chapter of American fashion has closed. Um, You know, she was the last of the bold businesswoman who really defined American fashion during the 1940s and beyond. But her legacy continues to live on. As Natalie noted, uh, the fashion calendar remains the industry's official calendar here in the U.S., and it's now maintained by the CFDA. 
So that does it for us this week, dress listeners. We hope that you take a moment to consider the legacy of Ruth Finley contained within your closet next time you get dressed. For images accompanying each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. You can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. And we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, please do so at dressed at howstuffworks.com. And for additional readings for each week's episode, check out our show notes at dressedpodcast.com. And don't forget about our merch store at tpublic.com forward slash dressed. That's T-E-E public.com forward slash dressed. Catch you next time. Bye.